Well, I tend to be a pretty patient person with people, um, but in other areas of my life, I'm not very patient. Not very patient. Um, one of the areas I'm not very patient is going through the Turnpike Toll Plaza, and I'm very glad that you don't have to slow down anymore. You can just go flying right through there. Um, I also count the number of traffic lights and stop signs on any route that I'm going regularly to decide which is the fastest way to get from one point to another. Um, I always use self-checkout, always use self-checkout. That's the quickest way to get through those lines. Before there were uh, no commercials on Netflix, I would usually watch two TV shows at the same time because I didn't like to wait through commercials. Um, I usually try to get to wherever I'm going early so I can avoid lines. Um, I try to check with everyone in my house to find out what time we are going to leave. And then I'm in the car at that agreed-upon time. Um, I try not to honk the horn because I've been told that won't help people move faster. Um, sometimes I can restrain myself, sometimes I can't, but uh, I, I've been accused of tailgating senior citizens who are touring Lancaster County and uh, um, because I have this belief that waiting won't produce any benefit for me in my life. It just won't produce any benefit. And I've discovered I'm not the only one who struggles with this. You see, I've discovered there's this new disease that they've labeled and it's called hurry sickness. It's called hurry sickness. And let me tell you what hurry sickness is. Hurry sickness is behavior consistent with continual rushing and anxiety and overwhelming sense of urgency. Now I want to give you a little test just so you can assess whether you have hurry sickness or not, okay? So here's the test. So here's the first one. You move from one, it should be one checkout, to another because it's shorter. So you come to the line, you move from one checkout to the other because it's shorter. That's the first qualification. Number two, you count the cars in front of you and you get in the lane with the least amount of cars when you're coming up to a traffic light. All right, that's the second one. You don't stay in your lane, you find the least amount of cars. Here's the third one. You multitask to the point of forgetting your original task. How many of you have done that one? You know, So many things going, forget what you're actually doing. Here's another one. Accidentally put your clothes on inside out or backwards. Um, how many of you have done that because you're in a hurry? And here's one more. You sleep in your clothes to save yourself time in the morning. So not me, not me. I'm not in that much of a hurry, not that much of a hurry. But the truth is we're all in a hurry. We're all in a hurry to go somewhere, to get somewhere, to be somewhere. We're all in a hurry. And the thing that we wrestle with, the thing that I want us to wrestle with is, so how does that sense of being in a hurry affect matters of faith? How does it affect matters of faith? Is there any possibility that we're in a hurry with God? We're trying to rush God, trying to move God forward, trying to get God to do things quicker, trying to get the church service done quicker, trying to get God to change our hearts quicker, trying to get God to answer our prayers quicker. And I would suggest that it probably is true. But the truth is, I'm not sure waiting produces anything good. But I was challenged a few years ago when we started looking at this subject of Sabbath about what does it look like to slow down what does it look like to slow down? And what does it look like just to be patient, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing? And so when I, on the day that I have for my Sabbath, I drive slower. I force myself to go into the longest line. I force myself to have someone wait for me on checkout. Um, I drive patiently behind senior citizens touring Lancaster County. Um, I force myself to do all those things. And what I've discovered is I've discovered that when I choose to do that, there's some benefits that come from slowing down and being patient because I get a chance to see and observe some things that I miss because of my rushing to get wherever I was normally going. This morning, we're going to look at a couple stories about individuals who had to wait. And as they had to wait... We're going to suffer something about God's view of time and some surprising benefits. And what I think we're going to see is that when I wait on God, I experience some things that I never expect 
that I would experience. When I wait on God, I experience some things that I never expect that I would experience. We've been in a series entitled Simply Jesus, and this series is about a guy who was an eyewitness to the events in the life of Jesus, a guy named Peter. And Peter walked with Jesus. Peter spent time with Jesus. Peter slept and ate with Jesus. And then he told the events that had happened to him to a guy named Mark, and Mark recorded all of them for us. Mark's story is a fast-paced story. There's no commercials, very little editorial comments, just fast-paced, nonstop action. And that's what we've been watching happen week after week after week. If you weren't here with us last week, I encourage you to go online and listen to our message as we saw Jesus uh, with his disciples out on the water in the middle of a storm. We discovered that Jesus not only wants to calm the storms around you, but he wants to calm the, st- calm the storms in you. He not only wants to calm the storms around you, he wants to calm the storms in you. And Jesus was moving from one side of the, the Sea of Galilee to the other. Um, and that's where we're going to pick up our story this morning in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn there to Mark chapter 5, if you don't have one with you, you can grab one in the seat rack in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, take it with you, and then you can look back over this during the week. You can also follow along on a wireless device, your phone or tablet, whatever you have there. I'd love to have you follow along there. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And in Mark chapter 5, they keep going back and forth across this lake. And again, remember, there's no commercials and no breaks. It's just movement in Mark's gospel. So in Mark chapter 5, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. That's where they went. They were on one side, now they're back to the other side. And then we get to verse 22, and they do the same thing. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side, there's a large crowd. And part of what we discovered is that wherever Jesus went, there was a large crowd. And more and more people were showing up. He was becoming more and more famous, more and more well-known. There was more and more people wherever Jesus went. And so he comes across, as he comes across, there's a large crowd following him. And we're introduced to a guy in the story, in the next verse. His name is Jairus. And we're told what Jairus does for a living. Now, this is pretty unusual. Most of the people that Jesus encounters, number one, we don't know what they do for a living. Very, very rare. Number two, we don't know their names. Most of them, we don't know their names. We know the names of the disciples, but all these people Jesus healed. You know, it's the guy who was demon-possessed, and the guy who was crippled, and the guy who had a withered hand, and the, the guy who was paralyzed and let down through the roof, and, you know, the woman with this, and, but hardly ever get names. Hardly ever get names. But this one, Jesus chooses to give us his name. And he tells us what the guy does. He's a synagogue leader. The synagogue was their place of worship. And there were two important people in the synagogue. One was the guy who made sure everything that would happen in the synagogue, the place of worship, he was like, okay, you go, and then you go, and you can, this happens, and you light this candle, and you bring this in, and you do this. He was kind of the guy in charge. There was a second guy, and he was the guy who took care of the whole property. Likely, it was the first guy. He was a guy that was well-known in the whole community. Everybody knew him. All the Jews knew him. Everybody went to synagogue. Everybody knew Jairus. And when Jairus showed up and he met Jesus, he fell down at his feet, a sign of humility, on his knees before Jesus. Why? Why? Next verse tells us why. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus. He says, my little girl is dying. He says, Jesus, you've got you to do something. My, my little girl is dying. How many dads in here have daughters? How many of you? You know, there's nothing we wouldn't do for our little girl, right? Nothing. I mean, imagine being in a place where you had tried everything, and this is your last shot. You would do whatever you had to do. There's a movie about a guy who did this a few years ago. 
named John Q. Remember that movie, Denzel Washington? You know, his son needed a heart transplant, found out his insurance had been cut. He tried to raise the money, couldn't raise the money for the heart transplant, and then he actually went and took people hostage to try to get somebody to help him. Then he realized the only way he could help them is if he took his own life so that his son could have his... He was willing to do anything to save his son. And this guy comes to Jesus. He said, he said, all I want you to do, Jesus, he said, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not, all, all I need is your hands. That's all I need. Just put your hands so that she'll live. That's it. That's all he asked for. Just put your hands on her so she'll live. And um, Jesus said, all right, lead the way. Let's go. Let's go. I'm in. Let's go make this happen. Let's go do this. And so Jesus takes off with him. Remember, there's a large crowd of people. And as this story begins to unfold, we get told something as the people reading this story that everybody in the story doesn't know. Everybody in the story doesn't know. We get told about something that's going to happen that nobody knows about except for Jesus. The disciples don't know about it. Jairus doesn't know about it. None of the people following know about it. And we're introduced to a woman who's there in the crowd who has a physical ailment. She has an issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know exactly why. We don't know what her physical condition was, but she's been bleeding for 12 years. And this illness that she had, it resulted in several things taking place. First of all, when you are losing blood, what is true about you? You always feel what? Weak. And what else? Tired, right? You're always weak and tired. So someone losing blood, they're always weak and tired. So there's a good possibility. She never would go out of her house much because she didn't have the energy to do that. Maybe I would suspect most people didn't even know who she was. But there was an also another issue, and that was related to the religious laws of that day. Because a woman who was bleeding was considered unclean ceremonially for the Jewish culture. And so she had to go through a cleansing process before she could come into the place of worship. And anybody that touched her would then become unclean. And so she was tired, weak, a bit ostracized. But she decides to come out in a crowd. She hears that Jesus is there. And we get a little bit more about her story in the next verse. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, had spent all she had, and instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, let her condition sink in a little bit to you. Incredible suffering. Doctor after doctor after doctor. I'm sorry, ma'am, there's, there's really nothing else we can do. I, I'm, I'm sorry, we've tried all the solutions that we know. I, I'm sorry, I've talked to everybody I know. I've researched everything. I, I've talked to everybody. There's nothing else we can do. Um, many doctors, many doctors. She's broke, spent everything that she had, and she's not getting better. It just gets worse, weaker, tired. It just gets worse. This woman doesn't really have hardly any hope left, and you wonder how much time she has left. But she hears about this guy, Jesus. She hears about the things that he's doing, and she wonders in her mind, maybe just maybe, if I could get close to him and I could touch his cloak, maybe if that would happen, then I would be healed. 
I, I don't even want to touch him. You're like, why didn't she just approach him and say, Jesus, can you heal me? Lots of people came to Jesus and lots of people asked to be healed. Why did she just come to Jesus? Number one, because like a leper, she was probably considered unclean. Number two, she was a woman. And so a woman in that culture was to be seen and not heard and was looked down on. And so she probably feared some type of public shame and mistreatment or humiliation. But she sets all that aside. She somehow struggles out of her bed. She probably covers up her head so nobody knows who she is because they know don't go near her. And somehow she makes her way to Jesus. And she says, and she reaches out. And she says, if I could just touch his coat, then... I would be healed. All this is going on. Nobody in the crowd knows what's happening. No one at all. And what happens? When she touched Jesus' coat, immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt it in her body, and she was freed from her suffering. And you might ask yourself the question, at least I did, why was she the only one that was freed from her suffering? Why was she the only one healed? If you're in a crowd of people... You're bumping into people all the time, right? Right? And as someone who is in a hurry a lot, I love to be in a crowd of people. You're like, what do you mean you love to be in a crowd of people? I like to find my way through the crowd. You know, I like to find the gaps. Okay, I can go here and go. My wife hates it because I grab her hand. I'm dry. She's like, don't drag me through the crowd. You're running everybody over, you know. Um, you're bumping it. Excuse me. Sorry me. Pardon me. Excuse me. You know, you just keep right on moving. There. People are fine. But somehow she made it to Jesus, and somehow only she was the one that was healed. Why? Why? Jesus realized something had happened. He, he realized right away some power had gone out of him. This is kind of odd to us. How does he know power goes out of him? You know, he's, is, is he like some type of metahuman that he's got a charger? He charges up in the morning and drains the power, and then goes in and charges up the next day. Is he something like that? But somehow, we don't really know how, the power has gone out of him, and he turns to this whole crowd of people, and he said, Who touched me? Who touched me? The disciples are like, Jesus, you're crazy. You're here. There's a whole crowd of people. There's like 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people who touched you. You, you, can't, you can't know who touched you, but you, you keep asking who touched me, and Jesus doesn't let this go. He keeps looking around. Who touched me? Did you touch me? Who touched me? Who touched me? Who touched me? Who touched? He doesn't let it go. He has to find this woman. And as I thought about this picture of Jesus... I realized that Jesus knew what had happened. Jesus knew what was going on, even though the whole rest of the crowd was oblivious to what was taking place. And isn't that true about Jesus in your life? Say, so what do you mean, John? It means that Jesus knows what's going on inside of you. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows where your heartaches are. He knows where you're hurting. He knows where you're trying to hold on to hope. He knows when you've lost hope. He knows when you've drifted away from Him. He knows when you're moving back towards Him. He knows all of this about you. Because Jesus can sometimes see things that are unseen in our hearts and in our lives. And it demonstrated here. He knew and experienced something about this woman that no one in that whole crowd knew and experienced what had happened. And suddenly, she could resist it no longer. She finally came through, fell down on his feet, just like Jairus, and trembling, she's shaking like a leaf with fear. Why is she shaking? Why is she shaking? Because she's a woman? Because she touched a rabbi? 
She's unclean. All of these violations that had taken place. And then she spilled her guts. She spilled her guts. And, you know, I thought about this woman's journey, and I thought, isn't this part of the way God works in our lives? You know, one of the steps towards healing in our lives is we have to tell our story. We have to tell our story. And that story might be to your spouse, something you've never told them before. Something to a couple of close friends, maybe in the context of a small group, or maybe with the therapist when you say, I've just got to tell you some things that happened. Because as you do that, what happens? What did Jesus say to her? He said, daughter, because you touched me, you're healed? No, what healed her? What does it say? What healed her? Her what? Her faith, right? Her faith. Her unshakable confidence that somehow, in some way, I don't really know how, that this man, Jesus, can rescue me and free me from my suffering. From my suffering. You see, it's your faith that frees you from your suffering. It's your faith that frees you from your suffering. And in your life and in your journey, there's things in our hearts, there's things in our lives, there's things in our story that every once in a while God taps us on the shoulder and says, now it's time. It's time for you to talk to someone about this. It's time for you to share this. This is someone I want you to share your part of your story with this person or this person or this group of individuals. And when that happens, not only is it your faith in Jesus but it's your willingness to share that story that frees you from the suffering that you're walking through. In the midst of all of this, this amazing story, this woman who's freed from 12 years of suffering and pain, in the midst of all of this, Jairus is waiting for Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And someone else cut in line and got Jesus' attention. Someone else cut in line and got his attention. It's like being in the ER, having a heart attack, and someone comes in with chronic back pain, and the nurse says, excuse me, sir, I know you're having a heart attack, but we'll be with you right in a minute. Mister, your back pain, we know you've been here before multiple times. Let's take care of that, and they get priority. You're like, what in the world is going on? How often does that happen in our story, in our journey, where we're waiting for God to show up? We're waiting for God to intervene. We're waiting for God to answer a prayer. And you see him answer it for someone else. And you're like, what, what, what am I, chopped liver, God? When, when's my turn? When's my turn? You're struggling financially. You're trying to honor God with your finances. You're trying to manage your resources. And someone in your small group who didn't even need it gets a raise they didn't even ask for. And you're like, come on, God. When's it my turn? It's my turn. I'm trying to sort through junk into your life and you can't make sense of it all and, and life only seems to get worse and not better and, and a good friend of you comes and says, you won't believe what Jesus did in my life and you're like, I'm so glad for you. God, what in the world are you doing to me here? I'm waiting for God to give you a child and it seems like every friend you have had a baby. My God, when's it my turn? When's it my turn? And while waiting, it gets worse. Because Jairus, the synagogue leader, someone comes and says, by the way, your daughter's dead. Let's just, let's just pack it up and go home. It's, it's, it's not even worth it anymore. Let's just put it all away. 
And so you're waiting for God. See God showing up all around you. Everybody else's life. Everybody else's story. And you're wondering, when God? When God? When? Jesus overhears this and he says, not so fast, not so fast. Don't be afraid. Jesus always says that. Don't be afraid. He says, just believe. He grabbed a couple of his disciples, wouldn't let anybody else follow him, took them along with him. They came to the house of synagogue leader. There's lots of commotion. They hire professional mourners, people that are wailing. They'd be wailing for seven days straight to mourn the loss of this young little girl's life. And, and, and Jesus says to them, why all this commotion? He said, the child's not dead. She's just sleeping. As I thought about this, I thought, Jesus sees something nobody else can see. They say she's dead. Jesus says, no, I, I see something different here. I see something different. And Jesus does that in our lives. He shows up and he sees things that no one else can see. He sees hope in someone where no one else will offer hope. He sees someone who's going to come to Jesus and no one thinks that person, they'll never come to, that's the last person to come to Jesus. And God says, that person's going to come to Jesus. He wants to transform and free you from something in your life and you're thinking, there's no way this is ever going to happen. I'm never going to get free from this. But Jesus sees something that no one else can see. He's even mocked by it by a group of people. They laughed at him. In the next verse, they laughed at Jesus. And Jesus instead goes inside with their parents and a few of the disciples. And he reaches down and he grabs this little girl's hands and he says this. He says, Talitha kum. Talitha kum. Which simply means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Jesus, who had just rebuked the storm, caused the seas to, start to calm, cast out demons out of a crazy man, reaches down to the hand of a little girl and says, honey, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. Because you see, Jesus is not only powerful and able to conquer nature and everything around us, but he's also loving and gen gentle. And he reminds us that even in the shadow of death, that he is there with her. And she doesn't have to be afraid. Parents, when you're going into a crowded place, a mall, a store, a sporting event, and your kids are young, you reach down and you say what to them? Give me your what? Give me your what? Hand, right? Give me your hand. Because you know that if you have their hand, their fear will come down. Their confidence will go up. And they will know that no matter what is taking place, they're protected. You see, in the midst of this story, all this guy wanted, he just wanted Jesus to touch her. Just touch her and she'll be fine. Jesus says, no, there's something a little bit more. There's something a little bit more. Not only am I going to touch her, but I'm going to grab her hand. And I'm going to give her this confident assurance that no matter what she's facing, even in the face of death, that I am going to be there with her. 
and she's going to experience something that she's never known that will live with her the rest of her life. That not only does Jesus control disease and he controls death, but he controls the timing and the events of all of these things in our lives. And you see, for some of us, that's really unnerving. Because I don't know about you, but there's certain things in my life that I want to be in control of. And I'm not sure I want to let God be in control of those things. So what are you talking about, John? My kids' health? My family's security? All of our lives? Am I willing to put all those things in His hands? Let me ask you this. If there's anyone you would want in control of your life, wouldn't it be someone who is as powerful and loving as Jesus? You see, He knows what it's like to be alone and to suffer in silence because He lost the Father's hands when He hung on that cross. He suffered alone in the darkness of death and He did it so that He could give us life. He lost the Father's hands so He knew that one day He could come to us and He could offer the hand of the Father And he could say, I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to leave you. You're never alone. You see, Jesus invites you into a relationship with him. And he says, when you choose to follow him, he says, you will never be alone. And I will give you the strength to wait. And in the midst of the waiting, you will discover something about me. You will discover something about you that you've never known. And that you've never experienced before. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. He said, haven't you heard about God? He's the creator of everything that exists. He's not going to grow tired or weary. And his understanding, you're never going to quite figure it out. This is what he does. He gives strength when you're weary. He gives power when you're weak. Even young guys, they get weary and tired and they stumble and fall. But when you put your hope and confidence in God, when you put your hope in the Lord, even when the timing doesn't make sense, even when everyone around you is getting what you're asking God for, He's going to give you strength. And you're going to be able to soar on wings like eagles, run and not go weary, to walk and not faint. And so God's asking this morning, He's asking you this question, He's asking you, where has the slowness of God frustrated you? Where has the slowness of God frustrated you? I would suspect that most of us in this room have asked God for something this week. Or even in the last couple weeks. And I would suspect most of us have not gotten 100% of the things we've asked God for. And so that would suggest that most of us want something from God. Most of us do. But God's timing is not our timing. Where has His slowness frustrated you? Where do you wish you could hurry up, God? Come on, God. It's it's about time. I'm running out of time here. The, the, The days are ticking. The hours are ticking. I'm running out of time. Can you speed things up? What would you miss if you rushed ahead of God? What would you miss if you rushed ahead of God? The woman with the issue of blood, she came clean 
And she told her story, and she was healed and freed. Jairus watched Jesus reach down, take his daughter's hand, give her life again, and hope for a lifetime. When you wait on God, you experience more than you could ever imagine. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me, and as we do, just want to invite you to take a moment Talk to God about what you're waiting on Him for today. You know, God, it seemed like for the last two months we've been waiting for fall to occur. Leaves didn't change. Weather would get really cold. And then last week we got this little glimpse of a couple beautiful days. And then suddenly over the weekend... Many of the leaves seem to change. And God, in our lives and in our story, it seems like at times we're waiting. And for some here, just like this woman, they've been waiting days and weeks and months and years without an answer from you. At least not an answer that they want. And God, for others, they've watched you answer this same prayer for everybody around them. And their condition, their situation, their story only seems to be getting worse. And so God, in the midst of all of this confusion, all of this chaos, help us to know that you are a God who loves us and you are a God that is with us and that we have chosen to follow you, that we are not alone. God, we need that reminder as we walk through the struggles of this life today. In your name we pray. Amen.